it's hard, I think, for a lot of gamers to realise that we're part of their marketing budget. You know, right. We are we are a tiny, even though this game we've got you know, thousands of copies out there, and we've printed so much stuff. They're amazing books, um, but it's still mugs and pencils <laughs> and calendars in the category. So you know, and it's, we are a very small part of things. He has been called the most prolific writer you've never heard of. Andrew was part of the design teams that brought us so many different games, and here's just a few. The new 2D20 Dune, Cubicle 7's Doctor Who, second edition Blue Rose, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Opera House, 7th Sea, and even the Firefly game. Now his take on the Modiphius 2D20 system is interesting, and I love hearing him talk about it. He also talks about the reality of what it takes to bring games like these to print. I will give you a content warning. Hearing him talk about the new Dune game might result in you adding it to one of your shopping carts. But make sure you stick around to the end to hear the incredible story of a little game he made called Pie Shop. Our newest patrons are part of the reason you're getting today's episode. It's because of their support and the other 100 plus patrons that I'm able to put out material like this on a weekly basis. So a special thanks to Przemyslaw Ryba, James Nevitt, Steve Maroney, Matt Sherwin, Michael R. Underwood, William Usall, Robert Sabbath, and Justin Redman. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Andrew. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Howdy, friends. Craig here. Today, we're talking to writer and designer Andrew Peregrine. Andrew is responsible for creating and contributing to a long list of role-playing games. But most recently, his new Dune role-playing game is just getting into players' hands. So, Andrew, welcome to the third floor. Oh, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So, Andrew, one of the first things I like to do with uh, guests that haven't been on the show before is kind of get your origin story. So at one point in time, you knew nothing about role-playing games. You didn't know how to roll dice and pretend to be other people. And then you kind of discovered it. So I'm wondering where you were when you first uh, first encountered tabletop gaming. Well, it was school for me. I had the um, lucky advantage, I suppose, of being born at a time when, or coming to school at a time, when D&D was kind of in, I'd say in its heyday, but it's kind of back in its heyday, which is really nice to see. Uh, so uh, loads of people around school were playing this cool thing called Dungeons and Dragons, and it was really cool. And they had these weird sheets of paper, and I, I wanted to know what those were, and they were like, no, you're not cool enough to play Dungeons and Dragons with us. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, I just got involved in it, uh, being obviously a complete nerd, not wanting to have anything to do with sports. Uh, it was a, there were the D&D clubs would let you not only stay inside during uh, the cold winter days uh, when they were you know, sending you outside with a football or something equally horrific, uh, but uh, also let you have an early dinner pass, So, which was a sensible idea because when you had an hour for dinner at school, if you could lose about 
three quarters of an hour just queuing up for and eating food. So you've got a, an early dinner pass so you could nip in, grab some food and then go up and play Dungeons and Dragons to discover that in the meantime your character had died because apparently you'd charged a dragon. So, um, <laughs> so yes, it, I've learned at the, you know, at the furnaces of having a new wizard character every, every other week. Um, and uh, and yes, yeah, so we played that. I then taught, sort of taught my brother and a couple of friends and we've been you know, playing it and then of course as as usual with gaming i've gone through several different gaming groups as time has gone on you know you move around and, and i've always managed to find gamers or join in with other gamers at some point because they are generally lovely people um and uh, you know and now i probably do it far too much still so it's been so I, <laughs> so i started when i was 11 in 1981 um and please don't do any more maths about that <laughs> so yes, i've been doing it for a little while um I'd be curious, Andrew. So for a lot of people, when I hear their origin story, there's a period of time where they kind of put tabletop gaming down, right? They took a year or two or sometimes five, 10 years uh, break from tabletop gaming. Was that true for you as well? Or did you or have you consistently been playing uh, since you were 11? Well, not the same game since I was 11, but right. <laughs> I don't remember any particularly large hiatuses. I mean, I think when I moved school from the small school to the big school, um, I was a bit sideways until I found another D&D club but uh, but no it, I've, I've had very long term things and been horrifically obsessive about it so it's it's just I mean it, it's like when you find your thing it, it's like you know there's, there's, ty- there's times I've sort of stepped back and not gamed as much maybe but uh, usually when I'm burning out as a GM or something because I tend to be the one running things uh, but no even when I am I mean it's kind of one of the reasons I write is because my theatre schedule, uh, now that I am actually working full-time in the theatre, it's taken a long time <laughs> to fight my way through in, in the career that way. But uh, I can't always get to see everyone at the same times. You know, I do, right. probably do still do far too much gaming, but I can't always see everyone. You know, I, I regularly, very easily, there are times. And writing games is a way which I can surreptitiously do at the lighting desk. Uh, writing games is, is a way I can keep up with my hobby and continue, you know, making, creating, and, you know, as, as all gamers do, um, while I haven't got a group around me at the time, you know. So it's, uh, so that part of it's been very, you know, very useful and very good. But, uh, so I'd be interested, Andrew, um, obviously, like many of us, you start with D&D, um, but l- when adult Andrew looks back at kind of uh, young Andrew discovering games, was there any other systems that you came across that really had a huge impact on you and, and kind of changed how you oh, looked at role playing? Oh, so, well, I'd argue to a certain degree, every game still teaches you that. I mean, if uh, there are there are so many games out there and so many amazing designers i mean i write a thing for en world so i do little blog posts for them uh which i must do some more of actually as well um <laughs> in, in between things and i've i've called it as a, a sort of game design masterclass thing because there are so many uh not and this is i should hasten to add not me lecturing how to do game design it's a series of sort of semi-reviews of saying if you like gaming you should check this game out because this one does this thing that's really cool and well done, uh, which came, of course, from, I mean, I suppose I can go back to um, games that have changed. There's about two or three, I suppose, thinking about it now, that have been particularly incisive for those things. Uh, one of them particularly is Discovering Pendragon, which I would 
Oh, yeah. And, and this is one I will fight people on. Um, it is absolutely the most perfectly designed system ever written. Um, wow. And I will, I will stand by. I, I will fight anyone on this one. Um, <laughs> it's uh, every time you look at Pendragon, you find something else. It just does perfectly. But it is both simple, elegant, clean, and everything. Just every cog and bolt in Pendragon fits together beautifully. Now, it doesn't mean it's necessarily the perfect game. There are, you know, there are flaws in the setting. Like you, know, you have to be knights, so you don't have quite the same character variety. Sure. Things. So you know, it's not to say you know play this game, play nothing else, because that's a really silly way to carry on. But the but when you look at the core of, I mean, it's a genius game anyway. But when you look at the system for Pendragon, I have yet to see design, make, or see anything that comes close to it. And in fact, as as John Wick, I think, coined the Greg Stafford rule, that is absolutely true, is whenever you create something and you think, yeah, I've, I've created a brand new rule, this is, this is going to change role-playing, you look back and found that it's in one of Greg Stafford's games. Every time, every, <laughs> every single time. time. Um, <laughs> that son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, exactly. He's a brilliant game designer and, a, and will be much, and continue to be much missed, I think. Um, so, yes, yeah, so he's one of the few... Um, old great games designers that I, I did actually get to at least exchange a few words with once at a convention when I got him to sign something, um, which was wonderful. What's moment. crazy about and, that for yeah. me, Andrew, is for you to talk about, you know, how how it mechanically and just so and so many aspects of it that it's perfect for you and it's not a new game so a lot of times you'll hear about you know it's so innovative and it's so perfect it's so clean and elegant and it tends to yeah. be the newer games that you hear that lauded on but uh it sounds like he was way ahead of his time oh oh he absolutely was now that's not to say that there haven't been some amazing games since then it's like oh no my, sure i yeah and i have to i have to I sort of add this one because it's it's an argument i have with my dad uh, who's a massive film buff I mean, proper film fan. He's been he's an English teacher as well, and he he has studied film from a long time. And he'll always say, you know, Citizen Kane, the greatest film ever made. No, Citizen Kane, it's a film. And I mean, I must actually see it. But it is a great film, I'm sure. But it also left me thinking, well, isn't that a sad indictment of cinema? Not because Citizen oh, Kane isn't a great film. But it was made in the 1940s, and if in 60 years nobody's done better. Isn't that a sad thing? Should, should there be a greater film if we if we've learned anything? If anything has, um, so there's a certain degree you think about Pendragon is going to take a lot of beating, um, but there are still some you know amazing. You often find these moments of genius. I mean, this is what this series is uh, is about. When I do these little masterclass articles, it's about finding those moments of genius in other games that might not necessarily be the complete package of geniusness. Um, but so often there's, there's something where you go, oh, oh, that's nice. I mean, it's, it's things, like, and sometimes it's a tiny thing. It's like my one of my favourite things, the uh, Free League's Alien game, which is a fantastic piece of design. It's great game. Very simple, very straightforward. But my favourite pit is one that you might, a lot of people might have actually missed, is in the experience section, because when it looks down the list of things you get an experience point for. One of the ones it says is, if you made any money in this adventure, get an experience point. So that's suddenly just, oh, I just love that because it's, you look back at all the alien films and you think, who are the guys who go, no, we're not going to run from the alien now. We, we're, gonna, we're not going to dump the cash quite yet. Maybe yep. we can just make an extra buck. And, that, and now the GM can look at the players and say, 
if you throw these away, that's an experience point out the window for you at the end of the adventure. And yeah. you can see, all, it's those little moments when, when games designers come up with things like that and you go, oh, it's like one sentence in the rule book, but it's, it's pure gold. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of and I call those, uh, this is probably not the right term, but I call them the trigger experience points, right? Yeah. Where you have a list of questions and it triggers, yeah. you know, experience. And I think the first time I encountered it, and keep in mind that, um, you know, I was not playing role-playing games for 20 years. So um, I might by no means is saying this is the first time it was done. It was the first time I encountered it was uh, John Harper's Blades in the Dark. And oh, I remember because... Yes. I came from old, you know, old D&D and GURPS and stuff like that. And I read that for the first time. I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. And then Free League, not only with the aliens, but you see in a lot of the Free League games, you're seeing that. And what I like about it, to your point, Andrew, is it's a way for the designer to curate the entire experience. I mean, the designer is saying to you, this is this is how you play the game, right? Yeah. This is what you should be looking for and where you'll find enjoyment, which I think is fantastic. Exactly. I mean, I think it's one of the aspects of good setting games design is when you look at things and go, if you look at things in the movie or let's say, let's say or the comic or the book, and there are bound to be things where you'll, you'll look at the characters and go, why are you doing that? That's such a dumb thing to do. The monster's <laughs> behind you or the girl's over. Why are you doing that? And if it's a game yep. design, you can put things in so that the player characters in the game will do those exact same things um, right. for exactly the same reasons. Then you've got the setting and then you are you know, ahead yep. of the game in that because that's what you're trying to evoke um, and bring that experience of being in the movie or the comic at the same point. Um, so um, it's very... It's, it, it's funny, Andrew, when you because I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about Dune in a little bit, but mm. um, I thought about Alien because I remember when I first came across Alien and heard about Alien, no interest whatsoever. I'm like, that, that doesn't interest me. I know how the movie goes. I know how things yes. end. You know, I, 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 there's horror games out there. I can go play Mothership, you know, uh, I can you yeah. know, go do horror, horror Traveler or whatever. And then um, I watched an actual play of it and realized what was happening and realized what Gaska had done and what he had put together. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, yeah, I, I like when he made me a fan and I bought it and have just devoured that game. <laughs> yes. That that's because it was a huge mountain for him to go up <laughs> because yeah. I really thought of it. And, and, but what was great about it is it made me realize because, um, your your Dune game, and we're going to get to it, is the mm. first time that I have been open to that because 15, 10, 15 years ago, I'd be like, no, nah, I've read Dune. I'm good. I don't really want to play yeah. there. I, I'd like to hang out there. But now that I've seen how far we've come in design, mm. now I'm like, yeah, give me Star Trek. Give me Dune. Give me yeah. all of it. Like, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, so the last thing before we uh, go to the next segment, Andrew, is... Mm. You know, you mentioned being a GM, right, and running yes. games a lot um, as you're growing up. And, you know, I ran games when I when I was growing up, as do a lot of our listeners. But not everybody starts to fiddle. We might change things in the adventure or adjust a module. But something happened with you where you went from running games to creating games. And I would love to get a kind of a sense of maybe oh, what drove yes. that and when that started to happen. I, I have no real idea. I did. I certainly started making games. Uh, reasonably early um, so it was I mean my other you know milestone game which is the, probably the same milestone game for everyone is of course Call of Cthulhu yep. which is one where I remember it was my move from D&D &D to 
to other games when I realized that instead of buying Deaths and Demigods um, with my birthday money for a whole £10, that was so expensive in those days, um, yeah. I could, uh, <laughs> and particularly as Deaths and Demigods didn't have the Cthulhu Melibonia mythos in it, I'd missed out on that one. I was like, oh, do I buy this one? But it's the next D&D book. I want another D&D book. <laughs> and then I looked at the shelf and went, oh my God, this, this Games Workshop company They've made a, like a reprint, and for some unknown reason, it's half the price it is in America. Well, great, Isn't and I can funny? buy a whole new game for for my nine ninety nine. Um, so that just opened up the world of you know. And the Games Workshop, you know, did so many reprinting these games. I got fully into all the Chaosium ones, Stormbringer, Ringworld. Um, that one of my one of my rare games I love to have on the shelf that usually comes out. Um, sadly, not enough to play, but but often to wave at other people. Go, I oh, look, I've got it and a companion. Oh, yeah, I've got that on my bookshelf. Yeah, yeah, you With are the jealous. nerd bragging rights. Yeah, exactly. It's all the same thing. So, oh, uh, that's funny. So, yes, and the old, and the copy of the old Stormbringer, which is still one of my favorite rock oh, band covers wow. of all time, with Elric with the yep. sword across us. Oh, yeah, so nothing's iconic. matched that for a long time. Love that cover. Um, we played so much Stormbringer at the time. Uh, but, uh, but, yes, all those. But while I was picking up all these other games, you know, there were other. I think it's basically there are other worlds I wanted to play in. So, for instance, there were, I remember particularly trying to do a, the prisoner role-playing game, uh, which Ooh. is, yes, yeah, <laughs> start at the top of the mountain, um, which was, uh, which almost looks up, but there's a GURPS the Prisoner, which is a great book. Uh, that's an, another one of my prize from my gold, cold dead hands uh, role-playing. That, that um, was a good supplement. Thanks. They did a good job a great that. supplement, yeah. And... Um, so I tried playing that, and I did play uh, the, the first thing I tried to put together as a as a new actual original setting game uh, was a game I called Ice Pirates, which has absolutely nothing to do with the film, which I've never even actually seen. <laughs> I keep meaning thing. to get round, but I keep hearing it's really bad at the same time. It's bad. <laughs> kind of, it's, it's really bad. bad. So. But I saw the name. I mean, this is, I suppose, this is what you or get it where you come to the all of these things. I saw the name Ice Pirates and thought, oh, it's like pirates were after ice. There's stuff I can do with that. And I've also just seen, and again, you, you steal from everything, particularly in that, that age. Uh, one of my favorite sure. Doctor Who episodes is also Enlightenment, which has all the ships sailing through space um, towards the, you know, trying to, you know, in this race to gain enlightenment. Um, and so I put together this. Um, world that would probably never work but one day i might might <laughs> resurrect this and try and rebuild it as you know if you see this kickstarter appear um it's potentially your fault as well that um, where this i had this world that was called Sycania that had every so often it got its orbit was in a sort of weird elliptic shape and it would get too close to its sun and the water would boil off it into space and collect into these great ice asteroids outside it. it. Once it got into space, it would cool down and it would all thaw. So obviously these people who would take cover during this horrific burning time in the, in the rocks of the planet would, um, would then come out. They would need water. So yeah. they would have to send ships up to do this. Now the way the winds are, this, this is horrifically. Arrakis has got nothing on this planet. This, this is because I, I'm, was, I'm in Andrew. Keep the, going. <laughs> the way they would take the ships off is that the winds were so high, you could get sailing ships to sail across these great dust seas that were out there, which were so powerful winds it could literally blow your ship 
lift you up pretty much off the edge of the world off into space and so people would sail up with these they had a bit of technology to create a sort of oxygen shield around their ship and they would sail off and collect the ice and bring it back but of course some people would you know uh, it was a lot easier to steal it from people rather than hack it out of the ice asteroids. Of course, you know, <laughs> economics, another thing to, to work into your um, early game designs, um, that, of course, ice pirates would be out there stealing the ice and you would either be defending the merchants and there, and I'd got lightsabers in there and some sort of magic and other things. I'd stolen something from everything. I remember trying to... But I'd, I'd try... I would pencil together these games usually made entirely based on the systems I knew, like, you know, for instance, you know, Chaosium system, I'd write, which is so easy to do, BRP, I'd write a yep. list of skills, work out, say, how many points you got for it, work out things. So we did, I think, a monkey role-playing game, Ice Pirates of Prisoner. Um, uh, we did... Ah, uh, yes, and I have to say, we did all put together uh, the David... Uh, David Edding's Belgariad books. Uh, we had a, my friends and I had a big session reading them. I'd seen them on one of my friend's bookshelves and I said, oh, that looks interesting. I hadn't read those. So I started reading them. Then I, and this was one summer holiday. So I was talking about these books to my friend Simon, who owned them. And, uh, and then everyone else would say, oh, these sound good. Can I borrow it after you? And then, oh, can I borrow that after you? So all four of us in the group <laughs> yeah. were reading these books in a cycle. Um, and through. And so, of course, the natural thing that came to mind is, oh, well, we want to play in this game. So we created this role-playing game around it uh, and played a few adventures of, of characters in this thing. And it led to the... Um, the one that we've never let, because I have to commit this to a podcast because we've never let Simon forget this. Uh, he was playing one of the, I think they're called the Algars, who are people who can talk to horses. They have an empathic bond and they can actually communicate with their horses. And we had one of those big party rows that you, I mean, not between us as players, it was a character in, you know, in-game row about where we were going to go or what we were going to do or what was going to happen. And we all all fell out horribly and all hated each other and it was ended stone cold with simon's character you know standing in the doorway of the the inn and saying well if that's how you all feel i'm going to sleep with my horse and and that just left after all of us going okay that you've just ended the argument now because we were and and that's edged in history now that will always be thing um, yes, if Simon sees this, or hears his podcast later, he's going to go. You had to share that story, <laughs> didn't you? Um, although not oh, as good great. as, say, a more recent one, which I, you know, I won't go into the whole background of this one. But you know, this is quite sad. My friend James, who my favourite quote ever, it was throwing his dice to the to the table with with enthusiasm and and, and rage and exclaiming, "Oh, these dice are so random!" and uh, <laughs> And the, the, the concerning thing is every single one of us knew exactly what he was talking about and utterly agreed with him that it was deeply oh, unfair fantastic. that his dice were rolling randomly. Uh, I mean, we had to say that is kind of the point of them, but it's... Uh, that's but we, really uh, we're funny. All, we all know exactly what you mean. There's nothing random about dice. We all, we all know that, you know. You can't <laughs> tell me. me. <laughs> yeah, you can't tell me that you know, the, the dice don't know or they're not doing it on purpose. That's why we have dice jails, you know. That's, it's very true. Exactly. I get uh, there's sometimes I get sucked yeah. into it, and I'm better about not getting sucked into it. But uh, yeah. you'll hear I'll be on some forums about for VTTs, and you'll hear somebody say, you know, well, you know, uh, there's a bias in the roll twenty 
uh, dice. I'm like, shut up. No, there's not. <laughs> like, why, why, why? I'm not even going to have this discussion with you, but I get sucked into yeah. it sometimes. Well, I mean, my, but... my luck over these did worry uh, Don McDowell from Cubicle 7, where I was playing, we were playing some One Ring quite early on. And I found nice. that for some, I mean, this is just our group, there's nothing wrong with But I found, I have to say to him, we were playing One Ring with, the, with the, the official dice, and we kept rolling Eyes of Sauron. That's like, 20 turn up in the session you know it's, it's oh, just the way funny. and and john was like oh god i don't really want to think that our dice are literally made of fail <laughs> um, i mean obviously there wasn't anything wrong with it like, before anyone goes dashing right. out to, to, to it was absolutely not I, we just had a very bad roll um rolling that's night. funny but um but no that was that just amused me well, that stuff burns in your memory, and it's it. Um, oh, yeah. It's something that I've talked to a lot of people about. That's very unique about role playing. So I, I do a lot of tabletop gaming, board games, card games, miniature games. But there's something very unique about the shared storytelling and the memories that form with role playing. I mean, I can't tell you a year ago about a single game of you know Malifaux or uh, whatever miniature game I played. I can tell you nothing about it. But I can tell you when I was 13 about my druid when he went to the castle yeah, and they just go, absolutely. and like I was just there. It's amazing. Mm. It's amazing. So guys, the Insider Insight series. Oh, please. Yeah. Well, I was to say, well, we are all, it's, you know, the thing about role playing is it's part of our own soap opera. So I, I think yeah. basically Ooh, you remember it the same way it. you remember your, your favorite TV shows and things. And it's yeah. more memorable because you were part of them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think, and I can't remember who I was talking to, and I liked how they put it. It's very similar to what you said: is you're creating a shared mythology, you're creating your own mythology, your own myths, and it just, you know, by by design for you know since the beginning, we have we have always always you know we've communicated and remembered via stories, which I thought was a, a real interesting yeah. way to kind of frame it. Um, I like the soap opera too, though. That's yes. good. So the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creations. And that's what we're going to do with Andrew today. So we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, I want to talk about one of his early games, Opera House. We'll be right back. Gadzooks Gaming is one of our favorite places online to get your gaming goodies. Terrain, base inserts, miniature games like Marvel Crisis Protocol and Malifaux, jewelry, and even hand-carved wands. RPG books for Call of Cthulhu and Dungeons and & Dragons, accessories and models to make your RPG session next level. They are veteran-owned and operated and help support us. So go to gadzooksgaming.com and check out all of their gaming gold. Be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. That's gadzooksgaming.com. We've already mentioned Dune, the last one, and, and Dune was really um, what piqued my interest and made me learn about Andrew and, uh, try, you know, uh, trick him into coming on the show. But um, as I was going through and looking through Andrew's games, there's one that in particular that I wanted to spend time with, and, and it's Opera House, Andrew, um, because I think it's a very unique setting and it's a very unique game. So for those listening that have never heard of Opera House, can you give us kind of a basic idea of, of the idea behind the game? Okay, well, it's um, it's. Born from my own experience as a 
professional theatrical. Uh, I'm a lighting technician, but it's my actual real job. So I'm, I always consider myself exceptionally lucky to both have, you know, to have my day job is one of these dream professions and I get to be a games writer, those things. That That's is awesome. Uh, constantly amazing. So I, I put all that experience of theatre together into Opera House. It's kind of the, the marriage of both those um, experiences. <laughs> I'm not good for much else, theatre and role playing. That's just <laughs> all I can do, really. Um, so the, the setup for this is um, that all of your characters have joined this place called the Royal Grand Opera House, which is a vast Gormenghast-like building um, that performs plays, operas, all kinds of different bits. And you've joined as any layer, this is the thing that was also very important to me, is you've joined as any layer of the production staff. So you can be actors, but you are stage managers, nice. lighting technicians, sound operators, automation specialists, uh, front of house people. There is a, any one of the vast army. It's not just about the actors, it's about the whole backstage experience as well. Uh, and when you join this, this company, you tick this little box on the form that says you're happy to do extra duties for probably an extra 10 quid a week. And you thought to yourself, well, that, I know what that's going to be. That's going to be I have to put the chairs away after rehearsals or I just have to do some sweeping up or maybe I've got to do some photocopying or something. It won't be too bad. Oh, no. Unfortunately, uh, the thing that extra duties implies is that as well as getting all your cues right and all your things you have to do for the show correct, uh, you also have to deal with ghosts that might try and steal the uh, life from the audience, uh, saboteurs from other theatres who try and ruin your show so it all goes wrong. Very there nice. are Morlocks that might come up from the basement when the noise starts <laughs> to find out what's going on because the theatre goes down so very far. Uh, there's even a fair few cursed props if something's been used in the Scottish play too long uh, and an actor gets hold of it, he might want to stab some of the others. Um, and there's all my oh and the, and the rats are intelligent as well and they start you have to do deals wow. with them to stop them nibbling cables so all of this stuff is going on um, it's utterly insane and the game is designed to work on three effective levels so you can run it just as you would any other role-playing game so you can run you know as, as an adventure in the theater and I've got this sort of setting called pavilion it's designed so that you can you can put it into a medieval place or a modern day or a victorian era nice. because theater hasn't changed for so yeah. long but it does have its own setting of pavilion which is this sort of theatrical city in a sort of semi-sci-fi advanced world and um, so you can play adventures in, in all of that uh, but also you can play the um a, a full one-shot adventure where you play the whole game in real time. So you say the show starts at half past seven, and that means as soon as it hits half, a, half past seven in real time, the show is going, and it's on. And as oh, part of your cool. prep work for that, you work out where each of your characters needs to be. Uh, and this, much to my surprise, this actually worked better than I expected it to. When I, got, I had this idea, and then I worked in playtesting, and went, oh, it actually works. I didn't really <laughs> expect that. Um, where basically anything you want to do, if you want to run to the, somewhere in the theatre, the GM says, okay, that will take you five minutes. Everything tends to work in five-minute right. blocks. So come back to me in five minutes' time, which usually happens by the time you've gone round what everyone else is doing, you've got back to the next person. And anything that takes a little bit longer in game time, in real time than it would in game time, uh, like a combat as the obvious example, you get a time ticket, which basically says if you spend that, it gives you an extra five minutes. So you can say, ah, nice. I've just looked at my cue sheet and I'm meant to be doing a scene change right now and I'm on the other side of the theatre, but I can spend my time ticket 
and go, actually, I was, I'm five minutes ahead of where I thought I was. I've just made it on stage in time to move the set. Um, but you work out all the things like where you're meant to be, whether you're on stage, off stage, when you're doing a scene change or you're doing other yeah. pieces, what sort of fly cues you're doing, what sort of stuff you're moving around. And some of the scene, and you roll randomly to see what these scenes are. So you might have scenes that are only like two minutes long and other ones might be half an hour long. And in, oh, that's cool. in and around all that, you are herring around um, to try and get everything done. And so you have to drop things like, well, I could chase that saboteur, but I have a scene change to do in two minutes. So I'm going to have to let him go yeah. now. And I've got to run down to do, because there is absolutely no excuse for missing your cues. You don't get, oh, I was chasing someone. No, you could be fired for that. So you have to do all cues. Um, oh, that's cool. And I did play it creates it. A, a timing and a tempo and a momentum. And uh, that's a whole neat layer that you battle in so many other games. And I never would have thought of that, Andrew. It makes total, absolute sense. And then that twisted weirdness that you've thrown in there. Yes, it, it's crazy. I mean, it, it's not as crazy as theatre usually is, but it's a nice sort of... <laughs> <laughs> intro um to some of the oddities i ha i say i have some stories but the uh but what i play i play tested it with what i call my theatrical gaming group which is a group of other fellow theatricals who we've uh we have to meet very occasionally because sometimes one of us has got a production week or has got a, an extra sure. matinee in or something so but we all tend to try and meet in afternoons because we're all busy in the evening and we've been doing a lot of zoom calls obviously while we've all been on furlough or not working because theater has been unspeakably hit by the uh, by the covid yeah. crisis um and of course that you know so it's a general side thing of course you know theaters of course had to shut down of course we had to um be worried about covid but my disappointment was how many of the mostly freelance industry were left behind um and i've known very sadly a lot of my friends you know i was very lucky i was exceptionally lucky in my theater uh, because i was a, i had furlough i'm a full-time worker in mine and um right so I was able to carry on, but a lot of people who were on crews and or shows that collapsed or, or shut down uh, had a horrendous time. But what was really, really sweet is I ran this game with my theatrical gaming group and a lot of them who hadn't been able to do theatre, or none of us had for the, for the year, um, there were, some of them were, were a little bit teary with, yeah, this, this feels like doing a show again, uh, which was the best compliment I could have where, where all of these theatricals felt that this was the theatre experience. Edgar. Yeah, well, I was going to say, that, of course, leads into the third part of what the game is about, which is it's designed as a theatre source book. So it's oh, wow. the idea behind it is to, because I've seen a lot, as, you know, as the usual things that irk you in when you look at other games or movies or things, where you go, I work in that industry and they don't do that. You know, yeah. why is that over there? Where you see things where you've got, oh, here's a map of a theatre, but they put no dressing rooms on it. Uh, or there's no access to the dock and, and what sure. have you. So I wanted to build a thing that firstly described how theatre worked, but also described what all these various people do in it. Because so many, there are other theatre games, some really good, like uh, by the author Lady of Windermere's Fan, and I think Robin Laws has one. Uh, there's a Shakespearean one I can't remember the title of, which are great games, but they're all very focused mm -hmm. on the actors uh, and what the actors right. are doing, which is often what you know, is the only bit of theatre people really know. And to a certain degree, I quite like that. It's nice being one of the magicians who, is, who knows how, these, how this technology works and how it figures and yeah. how we can, to a certain degree, I mean, you know, lighting itself is a way to manipulate the audience's emotions. You know, you take the lighting and the, the colors, the shapes, the mood that you set is what is augmenting what the actors are doing and pushing yep. the, the emotional feeling of a scene over into things. Um, so 
a lot of uh, what Opera House is about is to tell people how theatre works and not just that because we also describe how you put a show on from getting people together to auditions to taking the show down at the end of the production. Wow. We're going to touring theatre. I talk a little bit as well about the hell that is production week and how we get a whole show <laughs> in up and running before Thursday um, and how all that fits together. So it's um, so it's there designed to tell, teach people how to do theatre. Most mostly drawn from i mean i started working on it technically something like 30 years ago i had the idea and then never kept coming back to it but if if there's been one bonus from furlough it was that because theater was in such crisis something in me was a bit more inspired inspired to pick up that's cool and go, this is the time to finish this game you know this is the time to get it done this is, and you know to get it out there and do a kickstarter um and try and you know spread some word about how theatre is, is working and, and try and do maybe something to help support it if it goes well. And um, and it, so this is how this sort of all, you know, I, don't, I hate to use the word, say it all poured out of me. It was, you know, you know, it was words <laughs> just, because this is this is one of the things that is always annoying. Sometimes writing is, is, a, is a straightforward and, and simple job. Sometimes it's like wading through treacle. But there is at no yeah. point where the inspiration falls from above <laughs> or yeah. anything like that. It is you just got to get words on paper. It's uh, work. There's, yeah. there's a lot of a lot of people seem to mythologize um, writing, and it's you just got to get on with it. Sadly, and you know, and, and even when it's going well, you're still going <laughs> writing away and scribbling. Um, well, and you hear with all all, all kinds of. Oh. You hear it all the time, Andrew, with creation um, and artists where they say, you know, you're so lucky, you're so talented, um, you know, and, and a lot of times people don't realize that it's work. It's work and it's practice yeah. and it's crafting and mm. a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. I mean, th this is the thing I would say to, to everyone. I mean, and it's, the, and it's the, the good news, I would always say with things, um, if you want to be a writer, then you can be a writer. There is absolutely nothing stopping you because as long as you have a basic grasp of English, you can start putting words on page and you can start doing that right now. You can write your adventures up. You can write things. Now, being a good writer, that's the bit we're all striving for. That's the bit that right. takes the time. But that only comes with practice. But if you yep. want to be a writer and you can call yourself, and this is the important thing, you can call yourself a writer for this because you're putting words on a page. You, you, yep. are, you are a writer. You don't have to be a particular grade. There's no one's going to check you to say, you know, are you, you, know, are you of this appropriate standing uh, to do it? You, if you want to be a writer, be one. You know, you can do it. Well, and to your, to your point, Andrew, you, you can't become a good writer until you become a writer first, right? You've got to start. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not good. You're not going to get good unless you're, unless you're doing it. Um, yeah. and, uh, and sometimes just, as I say, the, the Neil Gaiman thing, um, that I think is probably something even he stole because we all steal each thing of that um, diagram, that Venn diagram of people to work with of, you know, works brilliantly, delivers on time, is nice to work with. It says, as long as you have two of those, you yeah. will be fine. Um, there are yep. far, far better writers and games designers out there than me. Far, far better ones. Um, but I have got an awful lot of work done by just delivering on time and hopefully at least people thinking I'm a nice guy to work with. Um, right. And so, you know, once you establish that, you can always get better at the last one. Um, and you can, I mean, yep. part of writing is just, you know, you write away and you hope that someone will like it. Um, but uh, as long as you're writing for yourself and writing games you would love to play, chances are someone will enjoy 
playing them as well and just yeah. you know, get on doing the thing. But uh, but yeah, so but persistence and and writing and writing what you love is you know is the main thing. I've been exceptionally lucky in in my writing career, if if it can be referred to as such, that through a general enthusiasm and just I mean nagging people till they give me work to a certain degree, but. Uh, and the more work you do, the more work you are, you are able to get. You know, there will there will come right. a point in your writing career where, after having written and doing stuff and creating your own stuff, you'll hand it, you'll pass a, a CV or a, or a note to someone, and you'll say, "Can I write on your game?" And they will say, "Oh, oh yeah, I've heard of your stuff. Yeah, I'd love to have you involved." Um, role playing is a very small industry, and people get to, get to know about it, and it's. It's always quite nice. I always feel it's one of the things. Um, one of my favourite quotes about me is uh, was one by the, the sadly late Steve Russell. He used to run Wright Publishing, um, who we lost a few years ago now. Uh, he had a, a wonderful quote when when I sent some stuff for his Lords of Gossamer and Shadow game. I did some work on, and the editor who was working with me saw the stuff I'd done previously. And I had the scene was oh my god I didn't realize you'd done this stuff which is like um, which is like well it, it doesn't really matter you're still my editor <laughs> it's, it's relevant how much <laughs> stuff I've done you know you but Steve came with my favorite which I would love carved on my tombstone he said Andy is the most prolific writer you've never heard of yeah <laughs> and, that's cool well, I, I mean right. a, a, Andrew you heard it you heard it in the when when I was doing the introduction that um you know I I found you through Dune and then I started digging I'm like holy crap like he's written everything <laughs> <laughs> He's been a part of everything, which is really exciting. So before we close out on Opera House, um, I'd be curious. So uh, it sounds like the pandemic and and your obviously it makes sense with your connection with theater. W what was the breakthrough for you, though? Because at some point it, it became real, right? It became real. It was going to yeah. be a Kickstarter and, it, and it, it changed. It changed for you and became something else and became uh formed do you remember when that happened or what may have what may have caused that to happen um, i'm still not quite sure whether it has yet you sort of have this thing of, <laughs> oh you, occasionally you look on uh, particularly when you've had a game you've been you know having in the back of your mind or something you've been trying to work sure. on for so long every now and again i look on the shelf and go oh oh i finished that didn't i oh right <laughs> And then you pick it up and found in the first page 12 spelling mistakes and the system rule that you really would have wanted to do another way. And you think, right, second edition, here we go. Yep. So, yep. Um, as I say, it's quite true, no art is ever finished. Um, but yeah, you just, there is a sort of weird nebulous time with any, I think it's easier with games than it is with something like novels or stories, although I still get a little bit like the few times I do do fiction, where you just know, yeah, I'm done there, I can stop that bit i've got i filled in all the bits i know and this is where being a game player is the greatest help because you can look at the game and go if i was playing this game if i picked this up as a as a customer what what am i going to read through this and go oh they didn't have that or what did where were they missing that or what didn't i explain about for that um so that's the thing you always keep in mind as a, as a game designer is you've always got to be looking from the point of view of, of being a gamer but yep. it's quite lucky that that's easy because we all are. I don't think I don't think there's anyone in the business that is I don't know how, just I don't play, know how could just be. writing games and not. I mean, we've not got time to play them. There's a lot of people right. that don't get the chance or as much time as they'd like to play them. Yep. Um, but uh, and there are, there are some people who are too busy writing to play as many games as they like. So there are some 
yeah, machines out there who I don't know how they write so much, and I really wish I could write as much as them. <laughs> um, but this is, I suppose, also what comes back to the the thing of when I'm saying people have not heard of me as things is you do see there's a mixture of writers. There is sometimes there is the job of your profile, and it, there are some writers who are very good, some who are also very talented and, and very uh, prolific writers as well. Um, who also managed to be very good at doing Twitter and, and Facebook and marketing and self-thing. Uh, but what has been really nice about this industry is I sometimes think uh, now and again, oh God, maybe I should be better with Twitter and my website and, and all this sort of thing and I would get more. But you kind of look around and go, well, it seems that the industry always knows. Um, other people are looking at your, your stuff. So you don't, Right. I mean, yes, it's helpful uh, to, you know, to push yourself forward is always good if you, you know, in a freelance world. But it's the the work will out in the end. And I've been very uh, pleasantly surprised to discover that when I've approached people, you know, these days, they will, you know, and say, can I do some work in the game? They'll go, oh, yeah, I know your stuff. Yeah, sure. You know, see what we can find you to do. So, uh, well, and the work stands on its own, right? Yeah. And the work speaks for itself. And uh, I would imagine, Andrew, that there was many, many a creator out there that would have loved to do to do Dune for Modifius. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. But I got there first, so they can't. <laughs> yeah, but 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 that's that, that's yeah. again, and and they may have been better at Twitter than you, and you know have a better branding than you do. But um, the work does stand on its own. Um, so that's great. So let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk about Dune. I want to talk about what it's like to design in an existing IP, tying back to what we talked about earlier with Aliens. And I'm really fascinated because Andrew has played and seen a lot of games. I want to hear his take on the 2D20 system. We'll be right back. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. <laughs> no one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to acoupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. So I think what I want to know, Andrew, is when did this first get on your radar? So when did you get a whiff that there was going to be a Dune RPG? And did Modifius reach out to you or did you show up at their door with a little bowl? <laughs> yeah, it's it's more the bowl end of things. <laughs> um, there's quite a long, long so as, as, you, as you may know, that uh, there are a lot of people in the industry. We all 
everyone in the role-playing industry kind of works for each other. It's one of the lovely things about the industry is that there isn't a thing of saying, for the most part, oh, you know, you work for these people, you can't work for these people, or you'll know too many company secrets. I did have a long conversation with, I think, Paul Williams, Wiggy, who does a lot of, I think, Triple Ace is a lot of it. And we were chatting about game things. I sort of looked and went, oh, God, here am I sharing my game ideas with another industry professional. And we sort of looked at each other and said, and it doesn't matter because none of us have got time to do our own ideas, let alone steal each other's. <laughs> we're never going to get around steal. to it. So you can, you can sit and chat about all these things forever. Now, I so way back, this makes me sound older than I am, and I'm very old, that um, so many years ago, I used to be the line developer for Victoriana, uh, which is still one of my favorite games that we worked on the second edition with for Cubicle 7. Uh, and it's now my fault, friend Wojcianowski, who's another amazing writer, he is doing some more work with, with stuff for that. Uh, he did the third edition, and he's, you know, he took my baby and put it through college. Uh, it was That's brilliant great. work. Uh, Walt and I have partnered up on loads of products, particularly for Doctor Who. As I'm rambling off a bit now, but Walt's lovely, so I'll, I'll chat about him. Um, and it's great because he lets me get... A, I'm, I tend to be the one saying, right, I want to do this, this, this. And he just sort of goes, yeah, all right. Uh, which for, for me, as I'm kind of a megalomaniac um, when I'm doing this, he's a brilliant partner because he'll just get on with it and go, sure, I'll just do these bits. But, you know, <laughs> let's me get away with murder. It's ridiculous, but he's a great writer and he's done some amazing stuff. Um, so he's so I used to when I used to run Victoriana, we had uh, another game on the line which Chris Birch was running, which was Starblazer, which is a huge science fiction game um, based on fate. Really popular game as well. So I've known Chris from that uh, for a long time from those sort of things, and uh, so we keep in touch. And of course, when he set up Modiphius, which is an amazing to see how that's grown over comparatively oh, such a short it? time, it's, it's expanded. I mean, Chris, there is. It's it's one of the downsides of, of the industry is that there are a lot of people get into it who are obviously they get in as games writers and designers and a very few of them have a business experience. And Chris had a lot of it, that business experience with T-shirt companies and things before. And I think that's a big reason for how he's been able to build Modiphius. And he's got a load of amazing people on board. The people I've been working with, Sam Webb, has just handheld it through the whole experience and they have people like cam who runs the business end of things for modifius uh, so they've got a really great setup and it's it's well deserved the expansion they've done but of course when they had um star trek adventures that's again i'm a big romulan fan so i was as soon as i heard whisper i mean you hear whispers about things as soon as i whispered somebody's got star trek it's like does anyone know who is Modif right chris how do i write for this who's working on it when can i work on it um, so actually you, you make connections that way. Um, then I gradually heard of, um, I know of, um, the rumor mill gradually came in my direction over, over Dune. Um, you know, sometimes these property, if it's a big property and you know people, you know, somebody's bound to say, I think you're a big fan. Aren't you a big fan of this one? You probably want to talk to such. Um, I mean, I had this as well the other way around when I did some work on one of the many Firefly games, which I'm very pleased to get involved in those, is I did a thing that was a science fiction western setting for Eden Studios. <laughs> uh, it was a little, a little article on how to do that because I was 
massive Firefly fan. And I got an email a little while later from Jamie Chambers, who at the time was running uh, what would be the Serenity RPG from Margaret Weiss Productions. And he mailed me to because he'd got my number from Eden. And apparently the success of that article, because there were so many Firefly fans, went, there's a Firefly game I must have. And thankfully they liked what I'd done with it, but it needed a lot more expansion. The success of that was one of the things that had convinced Jamie and Margaret to go for the license. And, and I got a mail saying, there's a thing, we've got a license we think you'd be interested in. Um, are you free? Yes, I am. What is the license? <laughs> it's Firefly. I'm in. I'm oh, in. You, know, you must have lost so, it. So there are plenty of times I've lost it. And then that was one of them. Um, yeah. So to, to work on that one. And then it said, oh, would you like to do the setting chapter? Yes, I would. Thank you very much. <laughs> so... You know, I crafted all this. This, you know, I basically got to build the world of world of Firefly. You know, while they were wow. working on the rules. Yeah, that's just amazing. And then I, I, and I got to work on the the Firefly game as well that uh, Monica Valentinelli was running again for Margaret Rice Productions. So I've I've now done three Firefly games, and I would happily work on a fourth. Um, but yeah, so so you hear these rumors come round sometimes. Sometimes too many because sometimes you hear things and you go, oh, who's? How did you hear that? I mean, there were. I was at a, I think it was at Games Expo, and I'd had a very surreptitious conversation with I think Chris because I'd heard about it. And was, you know, the first I heard about it, I didn't go to Chris to say, you know, how you know I've heard if the rumor's true. I don't know if it is or not. If the rumor I've heard is true, please can I work on it? Count me in. I'm all over this. Um, I'd love to be involved. And he says, okay, I'll, you know, I'll add you to the no doubt very long list he's got of people who have also said exactly the same thing. Um, but by that time, because I was working with Cubicle 7 at the time as well, and this one, um, one of the other people I was working with uh, came up and said, oh, guess what? You know, I've heard uh, Modifius has got uh, Dune. And I'm like, I don't want to say anything because I was sworn to secrecy. I was saying, where did you hear that? Well, I heard it from that guy over there. So how did they know? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's very difficult to keep secrets in this industry. It's uh, very difficult. But, um, but yeah, so I basically, I, I mean, to be fair, I basically nagged. Um, I said, uh, yeah, can I, can I, which is, to be fair, how I get most of my work. I just nag people eventually to say, all right, we've got a spot. There's something nobody else wants to do. Would you want? Yeah, sure. I'll do that. I'll do that. <laughs> Believe it or not, Andrew so, will bug us less if he's working for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty much, it's, it is pretty much that. I mean, it's like the, uh, I mean, luckily I enjoy doing these, but I think it was like Michael Caine said of, of his career or something. It's like, how have you become this big? movie star he said i just didn't say no to anyone you know and you see michael kane's been in a lot of really awful things uh, i'd like to think i don't i don't think i've ever written for a game i would consider awful i've got nothing to do with fatal um and i think i'd stand by even some of the work i did some work on the race you game many times which is one of the ones renowned as one of the worst games although mostly for some <laughs> how some of the ways that that was marketed didn't work but there are i would still stand by the work i did on that to be honest so um so yeah there's very few games where you go oh Oh, I'll take my name off that, you know, because uh, you know, because there's a lot of you know, it's very hard. It's very hard to really ruin a role-playing game. I'd argue. I mean, some people manage it, but you have to work quite hard <laughs> if you love something that much. You you can't do it. So yeah, so, so I. So Chris I, says. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Andrew. Uh, so no, Chris, no, sorry. Chris says to 
Chris says to you, hey, um, yeah, Andrew, let's do this. Let's let's you make Dune. Um, and I have no idea how that process starts. So does he just say, look, Andrew, uh, I want to do Dune. I want it to be 2D20. Or how does that conversation even start? Well, for me, this I came in somewhere in the middle with Dune because uh, one of the reasons I got the work that I was doing as, as an initially project manager, I'm sort of shifted into a creative lead now. As we sort of shuffled, everything sort of bubbles and shuffles around a little bit as if everyone finds the right niche for them things. Um, and uh, a lot of this was coming was because they were, they were getting involved in these things and it hadn't had enough movement over the time. And so they realized they needed to have someone to come in and, and push for it, really. Someone needed to be basically watching the pot and try and push some of the stuff. Now, the actual design, of course, has come from the effectively the official 2D20 designer, which is Nathan Dowrell, um, who has done some amazing... He is the core designer for Modiphius' stuff. So he is the 2D20 system. And he takes each version of that and he adapts it each time. So like Cortex Plus... Which I love. Another favorite yeah. of mine. It's, it's not that thing, whereas it used to be. I remember back in the 80s when <laughs> games had these sort of house systems and it would be a case of right this company i mean it wasn't so very chaos you know even was a you know one of the ones who would do this it's fine because br people will fit pretty much anything but it was a case of if chaos got the license it was brp if it was anything to do with tsr it would be a variant of dnd and often these settings would get quite crowbarred into a okay a rule set that really wasn't designed to to do anything other than just work and they did work but you won't look at the old, I mean, actually it wasn't quite the same thing, but Fassa's version of the the original Doctor Who. Um, it just didn't have that right feel. I, I mean, I played it, loved it, got all of it, because I'm a big Doctor Who fan. But that one just didn't really have the feel of Doctor Who until you got the things. And then you had games like Time Lord, where they'd done a new thing, but you didn't have character creation, and it was, but it had a great feel to it. Uh, so um, what is wonderful about the 2d20 system is that they take it and they adapt the system which is kind of a concept rather than a hardcore set of rules and make it work for the way that game wants it to run so you know star trek's fast and friendly but you want to add spaceships in it very different beast to how conan runs but both of them you can still see that same core of 2d20 um so so nathan had crafted these rules before i came on board uh, but he's not a big Dune fan, so I sort of brought in as someone who was could be the, I suppose, <laughs> the fanboy in charge sort of thing. I mean, we're all sort of the, it's, so I could try and push and just make sure, now do some of the line development thing, and this is the things people don't really see in role playing. But, and some of it is still even a mystery to me these things where it's like you need to get the manuscript by this date that needs to have art by this date it needs to have layout that layout needs to be matched to the, the printers um, templates those printers then you need to work out your logistics how you're going to get your crate of books back from one place to the other and which distribution thing there is I mean, the, the first thing I learned when I started getting into games design and professional games writing and production was that despite 20 30 years of uh, of being a gamer, I knew absolutely nothing. Um, there is, you know, a lot of people imagine, oh, I know the industry because I've been playing games. No, yeah, yeah. no. absolutely <laughs> nothing at all. How how the systems work, what is expected of a manuscript, what you know, what levels, and how these games get onto your shelf uh, is, is. And there is an army of people who get nowhere near the kudos they should get. I mean, this is. One of the ones I keep coming back to in uh, in things is that in my 
my day job as a lighting uh, lighting technician, I see things one way around because every, all the actors are the ones that people follow and go, oh, you're an actor. And I go, well, I, I just work 14 hour days to get this show in for the last two weeks. Uh, I think I'm a part of it. Um, whereas in role playing, I'm the other way around. I mean, it's the writers and the artists because, oh, you're a writer and the artist. So I'm always very cognizant that there are, I am simply one part of this. Um, and it's luckily it's the bit I enjoy, but a lot of other people are not getting anywhere near, um, the respect and the, and the recognition they deserve. People who, logistics people, editors, you know, editors take manuscripts and, you know, do amazing things with them. And, uh, and it's something that we don't celebrate enough in, in role playing and, uh, it, and it's very difficult to do some, but, but the people who are good at that, they get known, um, you, you very quick because they are gold dust, absolute gold dust. You know, as I, well, I see, and for the same reasons we talked about, right? Because they they, yeah. they 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 deliver. Yes, I mean, there's a number of times I, I did. I mean, I was very lucky enough to do this once when um, GenCon did the sort of guest speaker thing. There was always a, had a bit of a thing to it because whatever list they produced, somebody would go, "Oh, what are they doing on the list?" Which is which is all rubbish because everyone who did these things deserved to be there, uh, and I think it was very well put together, and they put together a variety. Uh, and I would I would apply each time, and I was very lucky to have put in the right things at one point to uh, you know because it was all done purely on what seminars you were going to run, and I'd done right. a, uh, and I well I think that interested in particularly this one year was realised oh I'd done a degree in religion so that's useful how it applies, and that I think was what the interest was interest. But I also had to look at the list of things and think it was irrelevant how much experience I'd done because I'm a role playing writer. They're ten a penny. Throw a rock. There's hundreds of them out there, and there's some amazing ones and some brilliant ones, but um, there's not any insights I, as a writer, can share that another 20 other writers can't really share. But find a layout person, a logistics person, production, an editor, find those people and get them to tell you how this business actually works. Then That's you can really learn something fascinating from them, um, because you know, we all kind of know how writing works and how pictures come together. So Andrew, you come you come into the game, um, and you know it sounds like the the wheels had already started. But you have uh, the passion, the love. You know the universe. Um, when I get my copy of Dune, and I start flipping through it, where am I going to see your fingerprints? Where do you think um, I will see Andrew? Well, after after so long with it, they're everywhere. Um, as, as, <laughs> as I said before, I'm I'm a creative megalomaniac. So I tend to, when I get involved, and I get involved in things, I like to get my fingers in everything possible. I think it's the theater thing. I like to know where everything is. Uh, I'm, and you've also, sometimes you get burned with things, but there are sometimes you've worked on projects where you've gone, the thing you didn't look at was the thing that went wrong. Not that I'm the genius that's going to fix everything, but you also think, ah, oh, that was the bit I wasn't looking at. I could have sorted that. Um, so after all, as, as running, the, running as a project, you find you're filling in all the gaps. I mean, but I have to say, obviously, it's um, it's no surprise that when I looked down the list of things that weren't yet assigned for writers, I went, I'm doing that one. Benny Talalix, um, face dancers, I'm all over that one. 
and uh, <laughs> they're my favorite they're horrible but i always love the really horrible ones um yeah but uh jason Jurel wanted to do the guild but if he hadn't i would have been all over that one as well um <laughs> so you have to you have to fight very hard with it as, as approaching it from a writer point of view i also had to fight very hard with not filling in and assigned so for instance i set it when we came to writing up the characters so you're writing up glito lady jessica princess Irulan, and all that and i was looking at came right i was geared up right okay well, somebody needs to write this and another eight thousand words of this one and i thought no hold on get somebody else to do this because i need to check the logistics and the printing and, and right. editing and all the other bits and pieces i do not have time to add another writing thing to this if this is going to hit deadline so stop it um give it to somebody else who will be who i'll be eternally jealous of uh they were great i think it was i think it was simon berman did that one for me um so you put these things together and i've got to, i've got to get on with the i'm not boring because you watch this whole book come together you see all these bits and pieces from loads of different writers loads of great yeah. stuff and you see it all merging together. And of course, we've also had the advantage of, uh, we haven't seen, you know, we haven't sat and watched the movie or anything like that. Um, you know, oh, I'd love to see that. I'm so looking forward to seeing this. But we have had a few things from Legendary to show us what some things are going to look like, uh, which have just blown me away because we've, we've mixed with the art has been a, our art and the movie art put together and you'll oh, see that kind of thing. that's so cool it was it's the best of both worlds because there are obviously there are things we would want to describe in the book that may or may not be in the film um and but we if we need to describe them we might need an art or a look for that uh and of course if it's not in the film then we go oh, you can't do it uh whereas what's been great for us and of course the other way around if we produce a book that's all our own vision then people come out of the films, the pe things that people are going to look at and go, whoa, that's all that look different. That's not the... I picked this book up because I saw the film. <laughs> yeah. So we've got the best of both worlds. They've been great. They said, here's the look of stuff. Here's what, you know, things like the Residency or Arakeen is going to look like, some of the spaceships and costumes and things. And we get to look at those bits and pieces, model our stuff on that and follow that design aesthetic. But when we want to build something that we haven't seen, either because it's not in the movie or we just haven't been allowed to see it because we we're not privy to everything, um, this is another sort of misnomer of the game thing. We are not having tea with Denis Villeneuve or anything like that. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is a, even this, I mean, I think they've really liked what we've done, thankfully, but it's hard, I think, for a lot of gamers to realize that we're part of their marketing budget you know, right. we are we are a tiny even though this game we've got you know thousands of copies out there and we've printed so much stuff and they're amazing books um but it's still mugs and pencils <laughs> and calendars in the category so you know and it's we are a very small part of things uh, but um but no so we've we've got to do our parts to this as well we can fill in our own gaps and then they, they of course check it and go yeah we like what you've done I mean, for instance, one that was quite nice is our, our Carino logo is one that we made, um, which was really good. So, you know, worked through it's Chris Webb's amazing design for that one. So we've, you know, it's, it's a wonderful position to be in for that. And it's just been nice to be at the start of this game and see a major license like this come together because it has been a very big tick box I wanted to tick off on my writing career of to be, I would love to run a big line and then look at the random things think what what things are out there that that haven't already been done or something and then suddenly something comes up you go oh dude what someone's doing that yeah 
you know, I didn't think, you know, yeah, that's incredible. didn't think anyone would do it, but there it is. And um, so I've tweaked and fiddled. There are some bits I've taken on some of uh, Nathan's design. I've fiddled about with a bit because, you know, it's what writers do. There's some bits I've thought, oh, we need to, you know, Jason Durell and I as well have looked at some of the things that as Dune fans, we've looked at some things and thought, no, it needs to, be, we need a bit more emphasis on this or a bit more emphasis there. Not that, you know, not that Nathan's design was, was needing or lacking anyway. It's a great thing, but sometimes we've put a slightly different twist or we've done some playtesting to oh, maybe we need a little bit more like that. Um, but essentially it was all there from when we came in, really. That's great. And, um, and yeah, and then we've just you know, filled in, there are lots of little bits I feel, you know, it, it's like as a, I've been in the position where I would just sort of, you know, put it. It's like having a big wall, and where you see cracks, you put in a bit of, bit of filler, now and again, or go, oh, we just need another section on that, or oh, maybe we should point something out about that. But uh, so I, I did lots of little bits and pieces, but particularly the Chalaxy was was mine because I'm a big fan of of them. I'd be curious, Andrew, and I would imagine you had to do this with Doctor Who and some other things that you've written for, but especially for Dune, what is it like? working with the people on the other side, the, the people in charge of the IP, the people that are going to approve things or um, sign off on them, the people outside of Modifius? Well, that very much varies on on the licensor in question. Um, this is this is the thing that's, that's sometimes problematic is very few of them really understand role-playing and really know quite right. what it is. So quite a lot of them, there is an element of... Um, showing them what it is and how it works and sometimes they'll come back with things that are problematic from their understanding point of view um, but uh, but usually with just a little bit of you know work through hand holding and the like that you know you can explain these things quite easily and in my experience from things that pretty much all the licenses usually absolutely love the things you do in the end when they see that book and they go oh this is what you guys were were on about isn't that something oh i see what you're doing now and it makes a bit more sense because it's so difficult to explain role playing anyway um and i think some of the difficulties as well come from uh, the other thing that is very nice to see as well is that the reason you are doing a license is because the people in charge of this license love this property and any problems that you do have with you wanting to do one thing and then wanting to do it another way or something like that. And ultimately, you have to do the way they, you know, you have to follow their vision. It's their stuff. It doesn't belong to us. Yep. Um, and uh, sometimes when those things come, it is because they love this thing and they want to make sure you are doing the right service to something they deeply care about. Um, so yep. there's very few times you will come across any role-playing thing you, you always get this vision of these cold companies going oh yes you know we're just doing it for the money very few of them i mean obviously they want to make money and they make a lot more money than we do doing these things but you know, very few of them and none of the ones i've worked with have ever been just you know oh, do what you want and pay us the license fee or something it, right not a single one they all care about getting this right they care about the status of their property they care about the, the core of their property and they care about what we're saying about their property because we have to go into things so much more to, i mean a lot of them are quite taken aback with the amount of detail we need to go into because you know if you see board games or even you know comics or things you're saying it's just what's that story and the level of stuff that we need to look at and they're like oh, so true uh, but then at the same time they look at it and they are sometimes they'll go wow, you guys have got this. I mean, it's it was quite a nice thing to hear 
that for the I say stories I've got more stories for that interesting now Doctor Who I hope hope Don won't mind me sharing some of these is that there was uh, the two that were particularly entertaining is that when we did the Doctor Who role playing game with Cubicle Seven um, the BBC liked what we'd done but they didn't know whether it was any good as a role playing game because they've only got us to talk to and we tell them it's great and it's amazing but they go well of course we would so there was <laughs> apparently there was a secret inter BBC uh, role playing group got briefly set up. They put out a little internal memo to say, if you're a role player and you work for us, would you come? We'd like to hear from you and put this small group together, people that they knew were on their side but knew about role playing, who could have right. a go at the Doctor Who and the played, Wow, there's a Doctor Who role playing game. We're all over this. And they got to play test a little bit of it. And um, and thankfully, thank God, they enjoyed what they played in the BBC. Went okay, that's that's fine. We've checked. Um, but oh, that's I, cool. But the other thing that was just always a wonderful thing to hear because I, you know, we as Cubicle Seven, as you know, they did a source book for every Doctor, so we yeah, managed to go amazing. through all of them. And it was it's a it's something I'm particularly proud to have been involved with because I think I did seven, half of four, and, I, and half of twelve with with Walt wow. again. Walt and I do separate stuff. And um, and it was great to be a part of that, not only because we managed to do all of them with the, m mostly the same look, the same format, that they're a set. And so often, you will have seen this in role-playing as well, that you see a set of, say, the source books for the countries or the source book for the secret societies or something. And the first book that comes out is completely different to the last yeah. book that comes out because they've changed things. We managed to get that same format through all of them. And they're a, they're a one-off lump body of work. It's brilliant. But apparently, um, the BBC did come back and, and say at one point quite casually, as I don't know if they still do this, but they say, we've started using those as our Bibles. If we want to double-check a fact or an Isn't episode or a thing, wow. we nip to where you've got those source books and Holy we double-check what you guys did. So, Because they're so complete, they're so full of yeah. all the detail, and they're every episode put in order together. So when when you hear things like that from your licenses, you're going, this, yeah, that's just amazing. Yeah. That's so and cool. It's, it's, and it's been one of the things that's been marvellous with, with Dune. I mean, it does take it does take a little bit extra time, but we have actually a, um, Joe LaFavi, who is our um, brand manager, and he is run ragged doing um, getting the approval things around the various companies, because it was the legendary and there's the Herbert Estate and various people. Uh, but we have we have had responses, you know, through all these various intermediaries from, you know, Brian Herbert, Kem Jansen, you know, <laughs> and I think it does, I don't know if he reads much of it, but I think it does cross Denis Villeneuve's desk. So it's amazing for us to know that it is not just going to a, um, a mug and pencil license guy. This is going to some of the people who actually are crafting, um, you know, crafting this thing we love. Uh, and they're at least having a look and going, I think it's right. And in some cases coming back with, with some notes on it. Uh, so it's, you know, it's been great to get that insight from our, point of view and it's been great they've been so on board with this um and so, so i've got a crazy could, hypothetical for you oh go ahead andrew please continue. I, I say it, it would be you know it'd be quite easy for them to go oh we're bored of this now but you know they've they've very much got into it and they've been you know so supportive of what we're trying just to getting do those notes so, has yeah. got to be exciting <laughs> yeah oh god yes 
<laughs> so I've got a strange hypothetical for you, um, and I've been trying to think how I want to craft this. So in the first segment, we talked about you diving into the alien book and finding this one little kernel that you got all excited about, about how they mark XP. And, and we you know talk about how that tells you even more, right? So here's the hypothetical. A clone of Andrew, who didn't work on Dune, gets Dune and starts going through it. It's the first time somebody like you has gone through it. What's the kernel that he's going to find? So what is something that you think is inside of that Dune that, that people that love role-playing games and are, are, are prolific consumers like you are, what is something that you think in there is just pretty damn clever or, or really special? Well, I mean, the first thing my clone will have to do is get over the fact he didn't get to work on it. So he's going to be really <laughs> upset about that. Um, I'd be beside myself, quite literally, actually. Oh, that's a whole awful pun. <laughs> um, you know, the the two things I've I particularly particularly love about this game that are come from and that what's come from Nathan's design are uh, one is a it's very much a two D twenty thing that's in everything, and one is a very particular Dune thing of how we've adapted D twenty. Um, the one I particularly love is the difficulty zero roll. Now, if you just sort of explain 2d20, you get your pool of d20s. You start with two, you can build it up with these points called momentum. And you roll against a difficulty number. The dice uh, will generate successes if they roll the right target number. Sometimes they can, if you get a critical, they can roll more. And the more successes you get, the better. Now, if you get more successes than you need for the than the difficulty number that you need to get. So if the difficulty is two and you get four successes, you get to add two momentum points to your pool. Now, these momentum are very much represent the momentum you gain from doing lots of successful rolls. So if your characters are literally on a roll, they build their pool, right. they use these points to, um, to then buy more dice for their pool and get better at things. It's like the way when things are going well, you can keep going well because you can use that literal momentum to um, to aid you in the next dice roll. Now, what is interesting in 2D20 is it has a difficulty zero roll. Now, in on the offset, you think, well, hang on, what, what's the point of that? Because if it's difficulty zero, I don't need any successes to pass. So I've succeeded. So what's the point of that? Um, now, the first point is it allows you to generate momentum. But the reason you're generating that momentum is because what you have a difficulty zero role for is all that stuff that player characters do when they walk into a scene. So let's say your characters have come into a party. Now, nine times in most other role playing games, I hate to use the term most other role, as if you know other people have got very good systems for doing these things. Right, not right. an That's attempt to say, about, yeah, yeah, I don't want to start doing this. Oh, other games that aren't as good as Dune. <laughs> But it's a very rare one to find is that usually the first thing the players do is, oh, I want to go around the room and I want to chat to some people. I want to find out some rumors. I want to see who the big players are. I want to see who's here, who hates who and get a lie of the land. And the GM goes, oh, hell. So now I've got to roll. <laughs> what are I going to do? roll some random rumors or I'm going to see which person you're going to talk to. I'm going to have to create about 20 NPCs to give you options. Yep. I'm going to play out something. Now, all this is good role playing. But also, if you've been there for an adventure, this is all detracting from the stuff you want to do. Now, in D20, D20 what you can do is you do you, the GM can say, OK, you're coming to the party. There's no particular problems. I'm going to let you do a difficulty zero momentum roll. Now, you roll that. You gain, If you do well, and this represents how well you have surveyed the party. 
how many people you've chatted to. If you only get like two momentum points from it, maybe no one was really talking to you or you were a bit tongue-tied. If you can fill up your dice pool with all six momentum, then yeah, you were life. So you chatted a load of people, made a few new friends, got a few ideas. Then when you come to make an actual roll, it's like, right, I am going to now have a go at the enemy we've got. I'm going to challenge into a duel because that's what we've come for. And when you make that challenge and you do your conflict roll or test for this and throw momentum, you're spending those points from what you've actually known. So you can go, ah, right. well, this momentum point is because that guy told me a rumor that you're sleeping with this guy's wife. And there's another momentum point here that tells me that those people never liked you anyway. And I know all oh, about that's that. So cool. And all of this stuff together, you can role play all these points and all of them put together represent. And you can adapt this for not just surveying a party, but surveying a battlefield, yeah. checking out your spaceship before you do a, a technical run or, or checking out the engine room before you repair things. Difficulty zero rolls could be any time the players do those really awkward i want to check things out and see if i can just get an advantage i mean that's usually what they're after and it's and it's quite fair that they want to do that to get an advantage to just say oh well i've checked things so i get some extra points because i've i understand what's going on now and how well i am it's very difficult to find a guide to say how well you understand that but in 2d20 you've got this difficulty zero momentum roll and how much momentum you've got which you can spend on other things later as and when you like is giving you that how well you did and and you can adapt it from there as well so if you say oh exactly. you're at a party you go tell you what it's not going to be difficulty zero because actually everyone at this party hates you because your house is, <laughs> is enemy. so i'm going to make it difficulty two but there's no there's no problem for failing so you know if you don't make the difficulty two well nobody was talking to you you didn't get any yep. momentum so you know those you know, that mixture of obtain information, I think we call it as well, the difficulty zero momentum role is one of my favorite aspects of 2D20. And that's for all the 2D20. What I love about that, Andrew, is is I've learned um, as a player and as a GM, I love when you mechanize something, right? So like you said, you go into the party and let's mechanize that. Let's put a role behind it. Let's do something mechanical to, to represent this. But I love it when I'm, th there's a full circle there. There's a cycle. So we've, we've, we've got a mechanic, but it can be, it, it then feeds the role playing, which has a mechanic. And that's a wonderful cycle. Wonderful cycle. There's a lot of things, particularly in June, but I think it counts for most 2D20, where you've got, and this is my favorite things, you've got a solid game system underneath which means you right. can then role play and narrate on top of it. So you can then start deciding what these think points represent very easily. You can create and craft the role play around it, but you're not left with the other end of the scale where you go, we've got all this narrative, but there's nothing underneath it to get there. I'm a big fan, for instance, of um, Fiasco. It's a great game, phenomenal bit of work, and you I've always love playing it. But you still get to that point where you start the game and you go, right, okay, we created these characters, got this great story, all these links, all these, the, you know, our characters are all complete assholes, it's going to be brilliant. And right, start off with scene one, what's scene one? And you go, ah, right, ooh, what is scene one? I have to think about this. Um, and you have this, I mean, Cubicle 7 as well did the, uh, the excellent Hobbit Tales game. And there are, it's one I'm always guarded against because there are, that's another one where you've got a narrative game that has points and structure underneath it. 
because you have these games and we've all got the the, the friend you i've usually corrupted most of mine because uh, i again i don't <laughs> shut up about it as you can tell but a lot of gamer groups have got the one or two friends who go I, oh I, this looks interesting but i'm a bit scared about it. and and a lot of people are quite scared about it it is it's role playing is an intimate thing and you've got to put yourself out there and throw your ideas out there and it's very easy to feel that you're going to get you know mocked for that or it's everyone's going to say you've done the wrong thing or something and you see all these weird arcane rule books where you think oh god i'm not going to get this it can be very very daunting and i completely appreciate that and so that you convince them to do one of these narrative games you know and you end a lot of these ones go oh it's easy you just tell a story and they go but i don't know what to say and then they still say oh but it's easy they go but it isn't and then they rush off and they never play this game again so there are some wonderful games hobbit tales is one of them the lord of the pies umlaut is another brilliant game where it is narrative but if you don't but it has a system underneath it to make sure that if you don't know what to do on your turn you can just say I pick that option and roll a dice and th- or draw a card and this happens next person. Yep. Then you listen to a cycle of this and you go next time around, oh, maybe I'm going to describe this as a rehearsal scene or I'm going to describe this as a party. And everyone can go, yeah, yeah, give us more. Do it. And then you can gradually wind your friends in onto this thing and then get to hear their stories. Because this is what we miss when people are frightened off roll, scared off roll playing. Exactly. Is we miss the stories they were going to tell us. Um, because everyone's got some stories somewhere in them that they want, want to share and tell. And, um, you know, and we're missing out on them if we don't, don't let them in. Well, I agree. And I'll tell you what, what backs up your, your thoughts on that, Andrew, is you look at the progress that Morningstar did with Fiasco. Um, you look at the different iterations of Fiasco, and he it appears, I haven't, uh, John's booked for the show, I haven't talked to him yet, but um, it appears that he recognized that because he, you know, with the card system and things like he's kept adding things to it to help facilitate and put some mechanics behind it. But I completely agree with you uh, on that. Um, <clears throat> um, it, it's... Well, like you said, it's, it's great to have both. And the 2D20 system, the ability, the flexibility it gives you, the ability, the narrative of the both the pools that both the GM and the players get to use and the ability to turn that and pull that around um, is absolutely fascinating. And I love, to your point, that it's a little bit different with each iteration, with each yeah. game. So it's molded to fit the game. It's very, very different in... Yeah. Yeah, very different in Conan than it is from Star Trek. And it should be, because there's two different stories being told there. Okay. So the other thing, I was talking about the, the second thing that is my particular favorite, and this is the Dune-specific thing, is what we're calling architect and agent play. And uh, what this does is, because we've separated out... Right, let's stop. This is again that... Uh, in most of the games, we've got to build your target number for your D20s. You take two attributes from your character. Now, in, these are very different depending on which 2D20 game you pick. So in, in Conan, it's one of your physics. It's more like the D&D stats of strength, dexterity, and a skill. Star Trek um, adapted that with having your bravery or your command and your, your skill type things as well. Mix things up a little bit. Now, in Dune, what we've done is completely divorce the physical aspect of your character. So what we do is have drives and skills. So there's a little bit come from one of my all-time favorite uh, games, uh, which is Smallville, which is another one I will go on at great length about. Cam Banks did amazing, groundbreaking work with Smallville. Um, Isn't that funny? And we've taken some of it for Dune, which is well, <laughs> as a definite influence. Um, and uh, so what you do is you are, it's not just important 
what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. So is this about justice? Is it about power? You know, what are you, what's your character driving for? So we've got this role-playing element to every skill that you do. Now, the thing that makes this particularly special and particularly coded Dune is that a lot of the times in Dune, we're talking about puppet masters manipulating from the scenes. You, know, you have characters in Mentats, it's, you know, Guild Navigator, amazingly clever, um, prophetic characters that are sort of manipulating and pointing assets. Now, what this allows us to do, because we have based a lot of the system around use, using assets, using tools to get a job done, and divorced the physical aspect of your character having to be there, we can now allow you to do both what we call agent and architect play. So if you want to go in as a character, if you've got, an, um, so the most obvious example is you want to go and fight the baddie in some sort of safe house somewhere. Now you can pick up to do this conflict because we call it conflict rather than combat because we've got layers for doing espionage and intrigue and all kinds of other things. It all works on the same basic system. Um, but let's say the simplest option of this is a, is a combat. Um, so you go into this, you could bring your knife with you and go in as an agent where I, I'm going to be facing the guy, look him straight in the eye, stab him with the knife. That's going to be how I'm going to play this combat. However, what you could also do is go, I'm going to send in my group of soldiers to take him down. And what this allows you to do is play as an architect. So now you're using exactly, this is where it's wonderful, the exactly the same system. You're both rolling battle plus drive to succeed in the task. Uh, but you're, because you're using different assets uh, and they use it in different ways, you can apply them in different ways. And the fallout from this depends not on... There's no specific rules differentiation between these until you get to the fallout afterwards. Now, if you are an agent, obviously you're there. If you fail this role, you can get stabbed, you can get killed yourself. The architect, he's safe, he's fine, he's miles away. Um, they can't touch him. However, if things go wrong in a different way, say your enemy manages to escape, the agent is on the ground. He can make it. He can go right. I'm going. To, I've got something else i can chase him i can see figures like i can stop something the architect is going well i've just got a group of soldiers in play here if they can't if they don't think to or if somehow they're neutralized as part of that conflict i've got nothing i can't change it up i can't improvise i can't sort something so there's different advantages and disadvantages to doing it it is not something that's defined by the gm saying right, you have to approach this as architects. It is purely player-based. Oh, that's cool. The player, you say to the players, how are you approaching this? This is the problem. Here's the, the difficulty that's going on. And then you say to the players, what assets and skills are you going to use and how are you going to approach this? So you can even mix it up. Half the players go in with knives, half of them send in drones and soldiers and things. Um, and it's perfectly Dune. And it and it's one of the things I focused on, because again, it's a story I'm showing of other other gamers I've, I've gamed with who uh, I hope they won't mind me naming drop but one of my friends Greg uh, who I play played in my game of not um, this version of Dune but the original version of Dune which obviously obviously is pride of place on my bookshelf as well uh, the big very much very pleased that I got a copy of that myself uh, it is a great setting Obviously, I think our one's better, but, <laughs> but <laughs> I've said as well. But uh, but no, there are some things I drew from that one. Um, but we played. I'm one of the few people that actually played it rather than just speculated on eBay. And I had my <laughs> my friend Greg, massive Dune fan, loved playing a Mentat, 
And as soon as we would do something in the game, Greg would say, right, I'm getting into the security camera zone and I'm watching on the monitors while all the other players would be going in and effectively doing the adventure. And he would do this for every session. And to the point that I had to say, when we were walking home for the bus, I had to say to him, just, just to check, I mean, you seem okay with the game, but am I failing as a GM to give your character a good reason to go in? Because you're always in the security zone and you're always a little bit divorced from what's going on. Um, and I'm not quite sure if, you know, are you okay with that? Is How is that working? Because my, my fear, obviously, was that I wasn't giving his character the right in and he was having a less good game because he wasn't, couldn't find a way to get involved in the group. And he said, no, no, his basic thing is he just loved being a mentor. Said, I mean, this is a wonderful bit of role-playing. It didn't matter whether or not he was doing the adventure. He just wanted to be the mentor in there, checking on the security cameras, manipulating from, from the scenes. And so I always have Greg in mind um, crafting this, thinking, well, now in this version of Dune, he gets to do something. You know, the security cameras themselves could be an asset where you can say, well, because I am looking on the security cameras, I can affect the roles for this. I can make a role because I can see something going on and I can communicate with the other characters. Uh, and it's been that mixture of styles have been something I thought, yes, I because oh, I wanted to make this game for Greg as well as all the other characters who had gone in for that. And that's been a very important part of it. That's, that's really neat. And, and, and it gives... And I love a couple of things I like about that. One is the different modes of play, right? That I can, I can, and, and I'm still rolling. I'm still impacting the scene. I'm still impacting the narrative through that. I also like the fact that it doesn't regulate to you. You're always A or you're always B. It sounds like you have the ability to choose at different moments to decide what, which of the two modes you're going to work from. But mechanically, it's all the same. I mean, this is the thing that has actually confused a lot of people. I've, I've just recently started doing a blog article, and I, there was a podcast I did a little while ago uh, where they specifically wanted to talk about architect agent play because that had a lot of people saying, "What do we do with this?" And it's it's a bit of an oversight in the in the book is because they use exactly the same system. We kind of forgot to say they're the same. So people see the architect agent bit and they go, "Great, how do I do these?" It doesn't say which way around I do this. The reason it doesn't is because you use exactly the same system. It just depends what assets you use. But of course, we didn't realize that we hadn't spelled that out as specifically (laughs) as we should have done um, in that one. A lot of people, because you're used to games that say, now you're in X mode, you use this rule system, and now you're in other mode, you use it. And people are looking, you know, all that um, role playing experience kind of works against you when you go, oh, how do I know what mode I'm in? How do I know what setting I'm in? Say, like, oh, well, it's, it's up to you. And you do the same as you normally do. It, the only difference it makes is what you've done afterwards and how it all plays out. And just remember whether you're there or distant from things. Oh, that's, that's so, cool. You, you almost made it too elegant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. this is kind of the problem. I mean, Nathan did it a little bit too well with that one. And, uh, and then Isn't we didn't that think, funny? Oh, we should describe this a bit better. So, so yes, that's been one of the, you know, one of the things that people have come out with. So guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, I want to, if you haven't picked up on it yet, Andrew has written a lot of stuff. So I want to talk to Andrew about some other things uh, that he's worked on that he's excited about. And I also want to take advantage of the fact that Andrew has been involved with this hobby on both sides as a consumer and as a creator for a very long time. I want to talk to him about where we are right now as a hobby. We'll be right back.
This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway... Enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. Um, so during the break, Andrew and I were talking and, um, you know, I explained to him, I could talk to him for four hours. I, like I said, I looked through his list and like I could do a whole podcast on your work on Doctor Who. Right. And just going that. But we're oh, not going to do that. But but I would be <laughs> curious when you look at all of the other things that you've created, when you look at, you know, things that you've been a part of. Are there particular highlights, um, things that you look back on because either you're you're exceptionally proud of it or what might even be more interesting is the the impact working on that had to the work you're doing now so it, the, how it really helped you hone your craft wow oh so many so many because <laughs> i mean it it's like a thing as as my my partner said uh, there was a quote that she loved about music where someone said um what do you mean it's a bad year for music every year is the best year for music because every year you have everything that's come before and all the new stuff and it is the same for role-playing it's exactly the same there is pretty much every project you get involved in you go ah oh, this is really sometimes even ones that um that you sidestep with i mean for instance i'm not a massive judge dread fan uh, but i've enjoyed judge dread and i ended up uh working with ian uh, publishing and doing I did the robot wars for the judge dread role-playing game uh, mostly this came about because I said when I looked down the list of properties I said oh you've got robusters I kind of like crazy robots that's that sounds fun yeah and then um it was Angus at the time I was running things and, and Russ said to me oh well the first book for judge dread is the robot wars do you want to write that one and I go oh well, I suppose so. If that's the robot one, I've never even heard of this story before because my experience in 2018 was lots, reading lots of little bits. You know, it wasn't the one I got regularly, so I'd get random stories. Um, and the wonderful thing with Judge Dredd's property is you can pick up just that story, read that story, and you now know it's like maybe even the worst, it's nine issues worth of Judge Dredd's story, and you now know absolutely everything you need to know about that property about oh, that that's cool. book and the setting so you don't need to read the entire backstory of judge dread to do this story i've got everything in that one thing everything's very modular you know you don't have to read every single judge dread story i still haven't i'm trying to catch up 
Um, and I had a whale of a time writing that. It was a bit of a thing <laughs> like, oh, God, I've got to write, you know, I've got to write a whole book. I'm usually, this, this is the secret to having a prolific backstory. Uh, write lots of little bits for lots of different people. Um, I kind of cheated. This one was I had to write the whole book on my own. I was like, oh, God, how am I going to hit the word count? You always think this every time you start a project. Am I going to hit the word count? Am I going to write enough? Is it going to be good? Am I going to be padded? Um, and I love writing. I could write the most gonzo crazy robot stuff just really let go this is what i loved it so i've fallen in love with doing for 2000 ideas every time we do another thing they've done some yeah amazing stuff and i love getting asked to do it because every time i do it's something really crazy and weird where you can go as far as you like with it um obviously the the one of the things the two things that will be the some of the most special projects i've worked on will be the first things I actually got a professional in print thing. And there's there's nothing that beats that to a certain degree. Um, I did, the first stuff I actually saw was a little section in the Buffy uh, role-playing game, Monster Smackdown, where I I was on with the playtester forum for that. I mean, so I'd done some bits. I'd done some stuff for Valkyrie magazine, um, which is the thing I used to live uh, house share with the editor. And so I'd, nag him to do reviews and things it's another good way to get in live with the right people <laughs> um and uh, so i was on the forum for, for eden studios um they had a playtest forum where we'd look at some of the bits and pieces and uh, and i said i happened to mention oh you know it'd be nice to have you know human vampire hunters you've got a section on vampires i've got a section on humans who aren't you know not slayers or anything just the ordinary people doing i went yeah, that's good. Can you do a thousand words? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I can. <laughs> um, and then they went, yeah, we like that. We'll put it in the book. Really? You will? Oh, holy oh cow. God. Yeah, holy cow. Um, you know, and those sort of things give you more confidence. You do things. And then I did the other thing was getting into 7C, which as, you know, uh, this, is a, this is a tougher fight because there's a lot of other things like that. But as I will fight anyone on Pendragon is the best system ever made, 7C is for me the best setting ever made. Uh, I am absolutely in love with that game. Um, I have nagged John incessantly. I do finally have something in second edition coming up. He finally relented. Um, and uh, but I used to write for Seven Seas. So my my first stuff was for that. And I wrote uh, I wrote Lawrence Liu's Temple of Longing. It's in a book called Strongholds and Hideouts. And I got to read the Temple of Longing, which was Lawrence Liu's sort of hideaway. And uh, and with it, they let me write a fetish dungeon as the Villanova's <laughs> prison. Um, this is Nancy Bowman was running at the time, and oh, that's racing funny. material. I had a, I had a horrific, uh, horrific set of bad guys. So this prison is basically flooding, and the prisoners are kept occupied by continually pumping out the prison that's hidden, Jesus. Uh, it, which keeps them exhausted, so they can't. But the p- two people who run it are of the Dutch. Such unpleasant people. They're both sort of um, both into a sort of very nasty end of uh, of you know beauty because you know, saying stuff isn't like this usually. It's not like Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, but they take bets on which prisoners are dying and which and this whole sort of and all this sort of nasty thing over the top. And I was like, oh, are you okay with this? Yeah, no, we like it. Let's keep going. Uh, so, <laughs> um, you know, and I've and then of course I've I've done um, you know having my own first game, the one I'm still waiting to find it turn up in a high school locker is Pie Shop, which is is a book I would still stand by. It was a 
it is easily the nastiest and most unpleasant thing I've written. It is quite horrific. Um, there are um, because you know, hopefully from from this conversation you've you've understood me being quite a nice fluffy guy and I'm quite lovely. <laughs> and people re- people read Pie Shop and then I will meet the next day and they go. Oh, there's stuff about you are, I don't are know. You okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay, is this a cry for help? Um, it's kind of a reaction because Pie Shop was written many years ago and it is I think it's actually it is one of the best things I've written. But it is it was a, an idea of when people want to do serial killers or the like, it's always kind of irked me that they're always cool or wearing mirror shades or something. I thought people who kill people like this are not pleasant people, they're not cool. It's a nasty dirty grimy sort of obsession and it always kind of irked me a bit because oh these people are so cool i yeah, never thought about that silence yeah. of the lambs and the light anthony hopkins performance is magnetic and it's amazing but it just adds this mythology behind that it kind of and i so pie shop is kind of saying oh you want to play serial killers there you go you won't like it yeah um, yeah and I did have a chat. So I'm, I'm kind of selling this one. I'm trying not to, because usually people go, oh, I've got to read this now. Uh, but the uh, I was chatting to a guy at one of the, some sort of game, with the White Wolf Party at Gen Con one day. So, and he was, we, I don't know how we got chatting about this, but we're talking about controversial games. And he was saying, oh, I said, oh, I've written this one. He said, oh, I'd like to see it, because I'm really, I'm quite into these things he wasn't you know crazy going, oh, yes give me the weird game but he was going very much no i like things that really push the button i'd be interested and i and i've got quite a strong stomach for this so i'm tempted to see what you've come up with because i said to him i do have to warn you it is quite full-on you know you might we're chatting i'm quite fluffy it is quite um fun. and he mailed me back i just sent him a copy and he mailed me later on and said uh, yeah i read it i loved it but you were not kidding yeah, there's, <laughs> right, no, I've seen a lot of stuff, and, ooh, yeah, I did, <laughs> I mean, there is a part of it, I got accused of marketing genius for this, this once, which is completely ill time, I was at a, um, I went to a, one of the first Gen Cons I went to, I wanted to sell my game, so I had some copies I'd had printed out, and I didn't know about, you know, printing and on demand and things like that, so I had them printed out, and I wanted to sell them, but I just wanted my game to be out there. I didn't really want to make profit on it. I just wanted it to happen and go, right, here's a game I've made. Let's see what happens. So, and I had a few contacts at the time. I hadn't really written very much. I had a few contacts. And I said to one, I said to a few gaming companies, would you mind selling my game on your stand uh, in recompense? Because I know you're spending money for your stand. You can keep the profit. Just give me my unit cost for the books. And if you think that's okay as a deal then I will send you a copy of the book so you can read it because you really should make sure whether or not you want to be attached to this. Right. I'm not going to spring any surprises on you. Uh, and one of the guys, the guys who did Crimson Empire, they said, yeah, we'd like, we'd be happy to do that. It's fine. Um, it's great to send the copy. And, and what they did, I was hoping they'd put a copy on their stand, but they didn't they actually put it under their counter. So um, somebody said, uh, oh, I saw a thing a while ago, say, oh, Pie Shop, it was this like marketing genius. You'd seen things, I spread every, you know, I don't think it was Facebook at the time, but there were various news groups you could find. I spread loads sure. of things, like, hinting about what Pie Shop was, and that you could find it on this stand. And um, and this guy said, oh, it's like this marketing genius. You went to the stand and said, I'm looking for this game, 
pie shop and I go and say okay and it's a look you up and down okay here's what you're after it's like it's an underground hit like amazing you were like, you were like the dirty magazine of Gen Con no it was at the time it was just bizarre and most people like, but it only lasted for I think about he only sold it for about two days um, because apparently someone who had bought it on the Friday came back on the Saturday and railed at the poor guy saying saying oh, this is wow. disgusting this shouldn't be allowed you know I bought it I bought a serial killer game in good faith and it upset me um you know I, I was quite after I mean I'd say my attitude to this may be um you know, some people may well disagree with this but I was thought initially I was thinking oh god I've really upset someone and and that is obviously bad um but I was also thinking Actually, if they got a game thinking this is cool, it's got serial killers in it and and got real serial killers and got something that actually shot them, maybe that's not too bad a thing. Well, it's mission so, accomplished, you know, right? Yeah, so to a certain degree, I didn't set out to shock people with it and I was kind of waiting for it to be after some sort of, you know, some sort of horror in America happens to find it in someone's school locker and suddenly I will both have to live underground for the rest of my life but also I'll be a millionaire or something. It's, you know, um, but it is basically, it's, it's a diatribe about evil and how we see it and, and things Very like that. Interesting. And I, it's something I'd still stand by but it's, it's, one, it's a game that's always special in some ways because that was my first game that was out there. Um, and then of course you just have all the things that you are just so pleased to write for. So, with Cubicle 7, writing for Doctor Who is always a dream come true. Writing for Dune is a dream come true. Um, and particularly, it's also, and one of my favourite emails, because I'm also one of my other most loved games of all time, is of course Vampire Masquerade. Um, I used to run the British arm of the Camarilla way back when. I've met so many friends through playing Vampire and getting involved in that. And I got to write on Tales of the Bloodlines and Tales and you know, Lore of the Clans and Lore of the Bloodlines uh, from the marvellous Eddie Webb was running that. And I got an email from him saying, we'd like you to work on this. What are your two favourite clans? What, which two would you like to work on? It's like, seriously, I get to, uh, it's La Sombra and Tremere in case you were wondering. Um, but, um, so basically, oh, I get to pick my favourite clans and write the definitive section That's on that class wow oh yeah you couldn't sign me up quicker i also got to do i think somebody um they lost somebody at half of the project so i got to do the nosferatu as well which oddly probably i actually enjoyed slightly more because it wasn't a clan i was so into so i didn't have quite the same fan leap into that one um but yes and then and then i got to do the i mean for lore of the bloodlines i got to do pretty much the two perfect ones because i got to do the daughters of cacophony and the true bruja so it was one that there was already a lot of law out there for and another one that there was almost nothing about so that was right. instead of trying to reproduce the law of a particular class there's so much out there You're it was the opportunity to add something to the this setting that i'm still in love with um you know, so again, those are, and again, I've managed to do some work on Modiphius Fall of London as well. But any time <laughs> I get to work on Vampire, they're my new people to nag. Um, so, poor things. Um, well, <laughs> so, um, Chris is such a nice guy, though. He's he's yes. just such a well, such it's, a it's, such a good guy. It's now moved. I think it's Renegade Studios has it now because uh, they've just they've just announced their Sabat book coming out. Oh, I didn't well. know that. Oh, so, wow. So, yes, Sabat, and they've done their Vampire Companion, which had the uh, Jabis and the Ravnos in it, in the Salubri. Uh, it was a nice free download. So, I love everything about V5. I think they've done spectacular work on it, the whole team. So, um, 
that's another thing that's always nice. Even the game that you don't work on or that you love, and then you see a new version, you go, just nailed it. Um, well, that that is a perfect transition, Andrew, to my uh, what, what I like to close on uh, when I talk to creators like yourself is what non-Andrew game uh, or games are you really excited about r- right now? So what games are you playing now or ones that you know are coming that are that have got you excited? So, oh, God, so many, <laughs> uh, so, so many. Um, one of my favorite things of, of recent years has been Invisible Sun. Um, I I I dived in hard on that one. Um, not so much because of the all the the flashy box and things, although it was an amazing box. It caught me at a time when I'd done a lot a lot of overtime at work, so it was like, oh yeah, I know it's expensive, but but that ticks a load of my buttons for weird, surreal, magical creatures. You can be who you want to be, adapt your character in all these strange ways, create your house and where your character lives all this sort of stuff, and then have this sort of weird setting that's so inspiring. Um, God, I wish I could write for that one. Um, <laughs> you know, I think they've done all the books for it now. If they had a, a fan version, as I've done some for seventh, you know, even, you know, it's the thing, even as a professional writer, I still do community content stuff because that's it's awesome. Brilliant. Gives me an opportunity to do things. I might, I guess I've written a load for seventh C for that sort of thing, because it does sometimes get you the work from people who notice this stuff as well. And uh, if they'd done a fan thing for Invisible Sun, I would have been all over that. I would love to have done that one. So that, that's phenomenal. Um, vampires are perennial. I mean, I have worked on some versions of that, and I have now have done Fall of London for Modiphius, so I, I can't claim I haven't worked on that one. But right. Until I had, it definitely was ones I loved. Um, I think other things I've been doing. I have to look at my bookshelf again. The, the whole pile <laughs> of unplayed games. That, oh, I uh, know. It goes. I mean, I've just picked up, I fight, finally, God, it took a while. I was an international backer on Altered Carbon. Uh, it's another Renegade one. Looking through that, that's been really good. I've had um, The Yellow King sitting on my oh. shelf. Um, Robin Law's uh, awesome uh, for setting game that's kind of and i've not got around to that because it's too special at the moment it's like no i that's the one i'm going i'm not going to just read half a book and muddle through it like i usually do when i'm running no i'm going to sit i'm going to read all of these and then i'm going to make a time where we're all going to play it and we're going to set it up and we're going to give this game the frankly the respect it deserves it's um, funny you say that, Andrew, because I think that's true of both uh, both both Robin and Height, uh, both of them. And of course, they work together all the time. But you can I think you can sit and read their games and never play them and learn a lot and be a better game, pl- uh, run a better game, even if you don't run their game. <laughs> I, d- I did say this to, to Kat Tobin, I think, who was we were chatting at a convention. Uh, I said I would I would love I said initially I'd love to write for Pelgrane. I'm not good enough. My word skills are not good enough for Pelgrane. And and she, and she said, oh, I'm sure I said, no, because I said, to, I, I honestly see Pelgrane is the literary end of role playing. Interesting. Like, you know, with a lot of us doing novels. Um, if anyone is a, is a literary role playing, um, it's, it's Pelgrane because their stuff is so well researched. It's on point. You know that the people writing it have, they've read these books. They're not just, you know, listing them off Wikipedia. They have read these books. They understand these and they are, they are woven this stuff in. So, yes, I always think, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd like to be good enough to write for Belgrade. Isn't that <laughs> funny? Oh, that's great. Um, um, 
Yeah, I have just started exploring their stuff because I, I had Robin on the show and he was a wonderful guest and, um, you know, just kind of dove in and, and, and now, you know, it's all, and this is what's fun for me is that, you know, none of, I've seen none of it. So it's like, I go to Pelgrane and I see this long list of games that have come out over time, but for me, it's Christmas. It's all brand new to me, <laughs> which is exciting. Which is real exciting. Um, so, Andrew, this has been a real pleasure, my friend, and I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Cool. That's been lovely to have. I will waffle on about role playing, as you can tell, for hours. <laughs> well, I th- I'm going to come. I think it's, uh, it, it's my selling thing at conventions. I think people buy games from me just to shut me up, to be honest. <laughs> It's like, if I, well, if I buy this game he's going on about, will you leave me alone? <laughs> That's funny. Well, we'll, uh, we'll definitely going to, I'm going to come up with an excuse to trick you to come on again. But for those listening, um, if they, um, obviously we talked about the games that you've worked on. We talked about Dune, we can go to Modifius and I'll have links to all of this in the show notes. But in general, if somebody wants to get more Andrew, where, where should they go? Oh, well, I have my website for Corone Design, which is very badly updated, uh, but that, well, usually, and of course, I, all my stuff's on drive through RPG. Uh, one or two things sometimes, very irksome, get down as Andrew, Andy Peregrine rather than Andrew Peregrine, which means I have two different writer profiles, which is really annoying. Um, but yes, you can see all the listings of my work. If you look up on drive through, everything's crept up and collated there. Corone Design is my imprint, and I tend to crop up in lots of different places. I'm mostly working these days for um, hopefully to do more Doctor Who stuff for Cubicle 7. Uh, I'd love to get more involved in some of their Warhammer stuff. Soulbound is just so crazy. It's very entertaining. absolutely love what's going on with that one. Um, obviously, there is more Dune. We have so much more planned. Um, a lot oh, of that's great. Though we've got about, um, I think I'm allowed to say, We've got two things in layout at the moment, another thing in writing, and a couple of accessories all in production. Wow. So I would love to tell you more about those, but I can't. We haven't announced them yet. Yep. But understood. There were, the stuff's coming out in, in shops at the moment. This is not the last you will see of Dune. Uh, we have got oh, loads great. of stuff on the way. We have plans up to like 2023 easily. And then that's just when we stop with the plans of things we've already discussed. Then we can start doing more stuff as well. Um, so yes that's all out there and i also keep keep an eye on en publishing because i do blogs for them and i do uh, i work on the 2008 line as well now and again so I beautiful some of the bits for judge dread and i'm nagging them to let me do absalom which i really love i want to do some of that one um, <laughs> oh that's great um well that's great and we're gonna have links to all of that in the show notes so for those of you listening just scroll scroll down you'll see links to all of the stuff that andrew talked about and uh for those of you that stuck around all the way to the end I appreciate you listening. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends. Check out our content on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, floorheads. Well, Andrew, your internet held up the whole time. Yep. And that was a fantastic conversation, man. Thank you oh, so cool. much. <laughs> 
um, exactly what I love to do is just you know um, get off the page and let's just talk talk about talk about games. Which is oh god, which I, is I can ramble all day. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Well, you did. It's, it's it like a perfect. disease or a sickness. It's <laughs> <laughs> absolutely perfect. All right. Um, so, how long ago? I'm trying to figure out how to introduce Opera House. Um, how long ago did you start working on Opera House? Well, I can claim it's something like the game that 30 years in the making, which okay. would be a lot clearer to say the game I kept not getting round to for 30 years. Beautiful. That's um, actually that'll be a great intro. It's That'll yeah, be a great intro. All right. I'll, I'll bring us back. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to end up buying your stupid Opera House game. That sounded really good. <laughs> well, I'd be more than happy to send you a PDF token. That, that's you don't need to done. do that. I'd, I'm I would prefer to, to buy yeah. it. But thank so, you. It's, it's, it's yeah. really like, and like there's there's several things in there, Andrew. But the one that just rung in my head was that that overarching. Um, God, it's not a it's not a clock, but there's there's something about having the play and the cues and the timing for that. Yeah. Very fascinating, yeah. man. Very, it takes very a bit of setup. I've I've found that the setup for creating the show does take quite a big chunk. It's like it's right. almost like creating another character. But yeah. you you do some random rolls, you put together how long the show is, and then you've got to write and you've got to figure out where your stuff is, and so people get a lot of choice. So cool. There's a lot of random tables to roll on so i have designed it so you don't need to already know theater to figure things out there's a lot of things you can roll and figure out roughly where it is but it, what's quite not what takes the time is you can put things together so for instance if you are if one of your characters is an actor then and one of the other characters is a dresser you can decide that one of your scene changes is them doing a costume change and it puts your characters together or that if one of you is on the crew and one of you is a stage electrician, you might be moving the same piece of scenery together and somebody's plugging it in while you're moving it. And these are moments that allow you to make, get the characters to meet up oh, so during cool. the show and say, after this cue, I've got another one, but you need to chase that saboteur down. And I saw him on the off <laughs> corridor. Have to deal with the rats. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'll deal oh, with the rats. That's them. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So right, I'm going to bring us. Oh, go ahead. You still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway... Thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.